Father, I pray again that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I don't know if you ever feel this way, but sometimes when we read a passage of Scripture and the reader says, this is the word of the Lord, and we respond, thanks be to God, sometimes that's a little hard to do. Today is one of those Scripture passages or even as we were saying that, there was something in me that was like, wow, this is an act of faith to say thanks be to God. This is one of those stories that, you know, we, I mean, I, I remember hearing this story in Sunday school. I'm not sure it was the best idea to tell it to ch- Sunday school children, but we did, and we do. And, and, but it's one of those stories that, that people outside of the church look at in Scripture and say, wow, I don't want to have anything to do with a God like that. And even those of us who are inside the church might be thinking to ourselves, hmm, I'm I'm not sure I like a God like that. And yet, I'm convinced that it's in the Scriptures and it's given to us because its value is significant for us. Sometimes we need to come face to face with hard truths. And this is one of those hard truths. I think it's important to understand sort of what precipitates all of this. And so in verse 1 of Joshua 7, it says that a man named Achan had stolen some of the things that were devoted or dedicated to God. Excuse me just one second. (coughs) I didn't want that to come out in your ears and blast you. This idea of devoted things is, is... The idea that there are some things that are set apart for God. There are things that, that, like for instance, in the tabernacle and the temple, there are things that are used for the purpose of what goes on in the tabernacle and the temple. And once they are set apart for God, they're no longer common. They are God's and God's alone. And to treat them as if they are common is is to act as if there is that they don't matter to God, that have no meaning or significance to God. But the, the thing about setting things apart is that it's really a symbolic means of acknowledging that everything is God's. And there's a sense in which we do that when, with the tithe. The scripture talks about how you know, people to give 10% of what they have to God and we give back to God things that God has given us. And we do that not because only 10% of what we have is God's, but it's a symbolic gesture recognizing that everything is God's. God created all things. God rules over all things. Everything is His. And to set apart things for God is to acknowledge that that not only are these things God's, but everything is God's. And that in setting them apart, we are declaring God is trustworthy. Whatever we give to God that may feel like a sacrifice to us or something that we don't have anymore is a way of trusting God that all the things that he has, he will use to supply the needs that we have. And so there's a symbolic gesture of that. It's rare that God says to the Israelites, when you conquer this place or this people, that nobody can take anything. It's all mine. That only happens a handful of times. 
But Jericho is one of the places that happens. And I think that's because here are the people of Israel entering into the land that God's promised them. They've been waiting 40 years to enter this land. They've been crying out in Egypt for 400 years to to receive the promise of God. And now they've crossed the river and they're beginning to take the land. And I think it's significant that God says the very first place, this is all mine. For one reason, I think it is, it's symbolic of the fact that you do realize all the land is mine, right? But this first city is going to, be, is going to remind you of that. But I think the other part of it is sometimes God, God puts those kinds of demands on his people at the very beginning of things just to make sure everybody understands the ground rules. I think that's the same reason why the result of Achan's behavior is, this, is stoning. I mean, we look at it and we think, good grief. Okay, so he took a few things. And yes, they were gods. But people do seemingly far worse things. I mean, if God did that with every time somebody sinned, we just live in a rock quarry. And nobody, well, none of us would be alive, right? There'd just be piles of rocks everywhere. God doesn't do that. It's a rare event for God to do this. But again, setting the tone at the beginning is significant. Our grandchildren, our son and daughter-in-law and grandchildren live across the street from us. And so as the children got a little bit older and they, were, they could walk back and forth, we, we said to them, we laid down the rules, you cannot cross the street without one of us being with you. You know, maybe we're, you know, one of us is in the yard and they're over there and they see us and they come running over. And we had to be harsh with them about that. It's not because there's a problem with them crossing the street. It's because they don't yet understand that when you cross the street, you have to be super careful. And, if some, and, and there were a few times where they ran across, and we had to deal with that harshly. And if you were new to the, the scene, and you were just observing that conversation between them, though it was a one-sided conversation, you might think, man, are they harsh. But if you understood the context... You're thinking, okay, I get that. It's not that God is is trying to wreak vengeance on people here. He's trying to help people understand his love for them and his desire for them to, to really engage in the promised land in the way he intends it to be. But if they take sin lightly, if they don't think about the consequences of what they're doing, if it doesn't seem to matter to them, then they will not experience the life with God that he intends for them. That's why in verse 11, he talks about the fact that they have broken his covenant. They've broken covenant with him. And that really means they have disregarded who God is and what God has done. And in doing so, they're in essence saying, even though we're God's people, we don't really believe that God is Lord over all things. And we don't really believe that God is trustworthy. If we don't grab everything we can when we can, then we'll never make it. And God needs to lay down the ground rules right off the bat that this is how you experience life. This is how you experience my goodness to you. This is how you experience the life that, that I created you to experience. And sometimes to get that message across to us, God has to, has to, what appears to be, has to do harsh things. But it's from a heart of love because God can act in no other way than from a heart of love. 
And so you see the context of that. And sometimes God may, may deal harshly with us in the sin that we commit or deal harshly with others in the sin that they commit. And we may not always understand it, but I can guarantee you this. One of the things the Scripture keeps telling us again and again and again is what, what, however things may look to us from the outside, God is always acting from a heart of love. And it's always because it's ultimately in our best interest. And he's helping us to understand that. Like we do with our children. I, th- I think that, so one of the things about this story is that God is saying to us, sin is serious. It has serious consequences for you. It has serious consequences for others. And I think that's the other part of this story. This is not just a story about, this, about Achan and his sin and his consequences. This is a story about how Achan's sin is connected to the whole nation of Israel. Because at the beginning of verse 1, it doesn't say a man committed sin. A man was unfaithful to God. It says Israel has sinned. Israel violated the instructions about the things set apart for the Lord. And then it says, a man named Achan stole some things. Israel violated the instructions. Israel has broken covenant. That may sound strange to us. You know, we read that and we think, well, it wasn't all of Israel that did this. And yet Israel suffers for Achan's sin. They go to, they go to Ai, they, they engage in a battle that should have been an easy one, and they lose, and men die. And Joshua is discouraged. There's a, later Joshua cries out to God, and he says, Lord, we'd have been better off just staying on the other side of the river if you're going to treat us this way. He goes into that. And what is it about human beings that we always turn to blaming God for everything? And, and Joshua, the great warrior, the great leader Joshua does that. And God says to him, Joshua, stand up. The problem is there's sin in Israel. And what I find fascinating is that Israel suffers for the sins of one person. And that to me is a little bit confusing and a little bit seemingly unfair. But Israel, the Israelites don't seem to have a problem with it. There's nothing in the text that says Israel was really upset with God that they had to suffer because of Achan's sin. They recognize what we so often miss, that being a part of the people of God is a corporate journey. We are connected to each other. We're connected in our victories. We're connected in our failures. I think that's I think that's especially hard for us because we value independence above almost anything. We as a, as a nation, and particularly think about the West, but maybe America in particular, we, we value so highly our independence. It's my life, I do my things, I, I mean, it's not that I don't care about other people. It's not that I don't have relationships with other people. But, it comes, but when it comes to, to spiritual things, it's me and Jesus. 
And as much as I may lament what other people struggle with, as much as they may lament what I'm struggling with or rejoice with each other, ultimately, it's just me and Jesus. And I think one of the things this story is telling us is that it is me and Jesus, but in the context of us and Jesus. I think we wrestle with that. I've said this before, but it sort of brings us back to that whole thing about group projects. I have mixed feelings about group projects. On the one hand, it was in a group project that Cindy and I built our relationship and eventually out of that grew to love each other and got married. So, you know, I have that. I have a fondness for group projects. That's a good thing. But all the other ways I think about group projects are not quite as fond. I'm thinking to myself, look, I'm not really, I don't really want to engage in this. I want to just slack off, you know, I'll take my C or whatever. But I've got two or three other people who are hounding me about getting my work done. Or the flip side of it is, I'm really engaged in this, and I've got another person in my group who is slacking off, and I'm hounding them about getting their work done. And I want to say to every professor that assigns a group project, this isn't fair. And I've done that. I've assigned group projects. And I can see a look on people's faces like, oh, man, really? I want my grade to be my grade. Their grade can be their grade. But I think the value of group projects is, quite frankly, it's, it's, a, it's a little picture of the church. But we struggle with that. You know, my formative years, uh, one of the one of the musical acts, very popular, I think maybe he might still be singing, is Billy Joel. You may or may not be familiar with Billy Joel's music, but he's very popular, sold, I don't know, millions upon millions of albums. But he, one of his songs is entitled, My Life. And there's a phrase in that song that says, I don't care what you say anymore, this is my life. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone. And that's the repeated chorus in that song. Go ahead with your own life. Just leave me alone. Let me have my life, do my thing the way I want to. You do your life, do your thing the way you want to. And, and that will be fine. I'm not surprised that that was a hit song. Because it sort of resonates with how we think. But there's another group that was part of my formative years. I don't know that. I think they're still touring some. It was the Eagles. Now, the Eagles, I would say 99% of the Eagles' music is not really good biblical theology. <laughs> okay, just, just, let me just throw that out there. But there is one song that has been going around in my head for a while. And I think they're on to something with that song. It's the song Desperado. And it's, it's, it's sort of, a, I think it was named one of the top 100 Western songs of all time, pop music. But there's a line in that song that says, your prison is walking through this world all alone. Think about that. Your prison is walking through this world all alone. And you get to the end of it and they repeat this phrase, you better let somebody love you. You better let somebody love you. You gotta let somebody love you before it's too late. There is something in those words 
that I think speaks into our struggle. We think independence is freedom. But the scriptures keep telling us that that passion for independence actually puts us in a prison. Because God created human beings for each other. It's not good for a person to be alone, God says to Adam. And God created the church to be for each other. To embrace life together with each other. The ups, the downs, the goods, the bad. I think that's why Paul writes to the Galatians and says, bear one another's burdens. Or another translation says, share one another's burdens. I think what he's saying is, be willing to take upon yourself the pain, the struggles, the burdens, everything that other people are going through. This is what we do as God's people. But we continually struggle with that. I've got enough to deal with on my own. How can I possibly think about other people? We think about other people because that's the gospel. There's something in us that loves to, to separate. And, and there have been times in history where a, a separatist movement needed to happen. It was the right thing to happen. But there have been far more times when it shouldn't have happened. And there's something about a separatist mindset that, quite frankly, I think ought to, ought to frighten us a little bit about arrogance. Because at the heart of it is what? We're saying, we're right, you're wrong. We figured out things that you don't know, so we're just going to stay over here because we don't want you to have anything, any, we don't want you to, to reflect poorly on us, and so we're just going to go over here and do our own thing. Because, quite frankly, in essence, what we're really saying, if we're honest, is we're better than you. And every time we, we take that kind of mindset, what we're really saying deep, deep, deep down inside is, well, I don't want to be a part of that because I'm better than that. And the gospel keeps calling us to humility. And the gospel keeps calling us to relationship. And relationships are hard. Relationships are hard, but they are wonderfully hard. Because life was meant to be lived in relationship. God himself wants relationship. And part of being created in the image of God is living in relationship. But relationships challenge us. And relationships call us to, to move outside of ourselves and relationships call us to risk. And relationships are costly. But it's in relationship that we become the people of God. And that means that, you know, we, we can't just say, well, I want to disassociate from those people or disassociate from those people. Somehow we have to figure out a way to stay connected even with our differences of opinion, even with our disagreements, even with our struggles. That doesn't mean we aren't discerning. We need to be discerning. And, and there, have been, there are times where we come to the place where the only thing we can do is to disconnect. But that's always the last resort. 
And even when we do that, we do it with heartache and pain and grief and recognizing and lament for the loss that comes from that. continually being challenged to say how can we sharpen each other how can we work with each other this is one of the values of of groups small groups the fact that we live life together with each other and we share with each other and we learn and grow together with each other and we challenge each other and we disappoint each other and we encourage each other we need each other I would say if you're not a part of a group, of some kind, a small group, a prayer group, a Bible study group, you know, we've talked about the, the banding together groups or three or four or five people come together and meet once a week and share life and share scripture reading together. If, if you're not a part of something, let me encourage you to do that. If you want to be a part of a group and you're not, let me know. We'll help to get you together in a group because we need it. We need each other. And yes, we are responsible for ourselves with Christ. We make life decisions for ourselves about Christ, but we do that in the context of the community of God's people. We walk the journey together as God's people. Because in the end, what I I hear from this story is, We rise and fall together. We rise and we fall together. And that's a challenge. It's a challenge for me. I suspect it's a challenge for you. But there is a greater joy in life together than we could ever experience in life by ourselves. And it is more costly it is more demanding it can be more of a struggle but let's be honest some of the greatest things in life come through things that are demanding and costly and a struggle Eugene Peterson says in the church the church is the place where we learn to love each other. Church is the place where we learn to love God and to love each other because we need each other. It may mean that we need to sort of change our attitude about what it means to be the people of God. It may mean that we need to get connected to something. It may mean we just keep doing what we're doing But ultimately, it is coming to believe with all that we are that God is Lord of all. All things are His. And we learn that best. And we follow that best. And we walk that journey best with each other. Father, thank You that You care deeply about us that you want us to know you and you've given us the gift of the body of Christ. 
open our eyes to see each other. That we might engage more than ever in our journey of community. And may we find in this journey the joy of Christ and the life of your spirit. Amen.